Welcome to the NPM podcast this week. Joining me today to have a broader discussion on the M&A trends in 2024, uh, Jason Siegel and Patrick Norton, both managing directors of Javelin Capital. Javelin Capital is a specialist merchant banking firm for companies in the renewable energy, energy storage, and green chemistry sectors. Welcome to the program today, John. John, how are you? Uh, great, sir. Great. Thanks for having us. Uh, no, no problems. Uh, so, uh, Jason, to kick us off, if you can give us a broader overview of M&A trends we should expect to see in 2024, and how might it be uh, different from what we saw in 2023? Absolutely, John. Um, we are um, in for a very interesting and active year, so uh, get your seatbelts on. Uh, currently, the bid-ask spreads uh, between what developers are looking for and investors are are willing to uh, to pay for projects and platforms uh, have you know, have been wide, and we see that continuing to uh, remain wide in the early parts of the year, um, but that we are very bullish on seeing increasing deal activity um, that will ultimately support higher valuations for renewables. Some of the key things that are going to be driving this um, will be the very material decline uh, in rates that has been a major factor uh, for the industry in the last number of years and likelihood of you know, a Fed pause overall. Uh, another key factor is uh, what we would call the better late than never uh, when it comes to the IRA benefits. You know, it's taken longer than I think anybody in industry has wanted uh, to actually really understand the implications and what's really gonna stick. But as guidance and confidence in some of the related transaction structures are finally here, um, that's gonna be a, uh, a big boon to accelerating the transaction volume this year versus last year. Um, the other thing which is you know continuing on is projects cost are broadly in decline. Um, and that will likewise benefit everybody in the industry. Um, one other thing I think that's really important to mention about a uh, about 24 is that the buy side collectively hugely under um, uh, uh, hugely missed their uh, deployment targets for 23. So the catch up is inevitable because of the dry powder that's out there. Uh, a few other trends I think that you know are important to note and that we're seeing is, as I was alluding to before, this is a highly complex deal environment. Um, Javelin's been in the space for several cycles, and this is by far the most complex uh, environment that we've seen because of both macro, micro, uh, and, uh, and and global trends uh, affecting the U.S. Um, and so there are, while there are, you know, remaining uncertainties, as I mentioned a minute ago, we will be seeing things uh, start to clarify and therefore an acceleration of deal activity. Um, some, trans some of these transactions will not close, so we will see some early stage projects being written off, but there's going to be uh, a lot of closed deal activity and we can all expect to uh, be, be very busy uh, between service providers, capital providers and, uh, and project developers and IPPs. Uh, get, getting into some of the subsectors, um, you know, in utility scale, uh, renewables, uh, especially solar, but also uh, also wind and storage, um, we will, I think, will continue to see 
economies of scale uh, for incumbents who have access to capital. Um, generally, lenders and tax equity uh, providers um, will continue to focus on their existing client bases. So um, again, there will be more and more consolidation among the utility scale. Um, in, an important element of the IRA and of course, a big driver of, uh, of the US market uh, relates to the, uh, the, the hybrid tax equity structures that have started to evolve out of the, uh, the IRA and the transfer uh, provisions. So you know we're still in a situation now where every hybrid deal looks different than others, but we at Javelin see you know and expect that uh, these will start to coalesce around a few uh, much more uh, well uh, well established structures, um, and so uh, both the, the confluence of again more established hybrid tax equity structures along with more participants uh, in the tax equity market. Um, will also help accelerate the industry this year. Uh, just a side note on you know, the uh, new tax equity providers. Historically, a lot of tax equity decisions from corporates have been coming from the Treasury Department, uh, their Treasury Departments. Um, now, while of course that will continue, there is more uh, drivers that come from ESG considerations. So in other words, C-suite decisions saying, let's really get into the tax equity market. Let's take a closer look to whether it fits with our tax appetite. Um, let's you know, be willing you know, effectively to, uh, to be a little more front foot. Uh, but, uh, but the tax equity, of course, will continue to be, uh, you know, to be a, uh, a, key, a key driver of the industry. Um, I would say you know, the one or two other important trends that relate to M&A directly um, will, as uh, bank lenders continue to be just absolutely deluged with uh, with deal activity, uh, both private credit and in the form of funds, and also in institutional private credit will play an increasing role. And so there become more options for financing than we've ever seen before. Uh, and and then I'd say um, community solar and a couple of other regional programs as they start to mature, start to scale are really interesting alternatives to utility scale, but certainly also to, D, to more traditional DG. So we really expect to see a lot of work and we've done, done quite a bit ourselves in community solar in, at, at Javelin. And I think the last thing um, that's gonna be very different from last year is we're gonna start to see more stressed and distressed assets um, that you know, mostly are related to uh, you know, follow-on uh, results from, uh, from rates. And so you know, perfectly good operating projects, for example, that might you know, struggle to make their debt service or make their insurance payments now. So again, that's gonna also lead to a lot of deal activity. So in summary, all forces point to more deal activity, more m and in 24. Great, uh, thanks for that. Um, uh, where to where to follow up on that? I'm not sure, but um, <laughs> what what it what has happened is that um, you know returns are definitely changing in projects. Um, you know the the cost and expense, uh, you know, which sometimes comes out in in regulatory filings, sometimes even comes out in press releases. Obviously, leads to the fact that it's getting more expensive to build these projects, um, and it seems like it's leading to more. Um, structured equity transactions in the renewable energy space in general. Um, so just wanted to get a sense, um, you know, A, what's driving it, 
and um, B, whether you know you, you can give some observations about how that's going so far, whether these transactions are going to be meaningful or could lead to something a little more disastrous down the line. Um, no, I, I certainly don't think it's going to lead to more disastrous um, down the line. I think um, it's really prudence uh, from the investment community and uh, an acceptance of more risk sharing from developers that uh, means that both sides of the of the coin uh, between capital and and development um, should work nicely together in more uh, in more structured solutions. It's something at Javelin that we've been doing for at least five or six years now um, in you know across different uh, different asset classes uh, within renewables. Uh, you know, I think you know some of the very very quickly some of the dynamics. You know, developers um, have more options than they have previously. There's a lot of innovation going on in financing financing structures, not just in tax equity, but other access to development capital and even subsectors of development capital. You know, higher risk, lower risk development capital, such as refundable deposits. So developers have more options. Uh, equity investors with with deeply established platforms really uh, are mostly looking to uh, you know to scale and they know what kind of projects they want or portfolios or DG portfolios they want to fill out their portfolios. So they will stick with uh, generally with just straight MA or straight you know common interest acquisitions and um, eventually uh, the bid offer spreads you know will uh, will come down to clearing prices. And so in in for more established uh, investors, with uh, with portfolios, I think we will see more, you know, continue to see more common structures. Um, however, newer entrants um, who want to try to achieve the higher returns, John, that you were speaking about, um, continue to uh, be willing to take more development risk. And a good way for them to do it is to invest at the top co as well as at the asset co levels of uh, development platforms, including funding new ones. So we think that high quality entrants will be coming in. They will have access to capital through structured solutions. And this will offer potentially higher returns um, along with slightly higher risk for, uh, for investors. One other you know, trend that could be affected by this as many established IPPs uh, just for capital efficiency have started to sell down minority positions across portfolios. We've uh, been involved as, as well as many of our peers have in these. And I think that trend will continue. Um, some of those will be common interest and some of them will be PREF structures. Um, you mentioned earlier about consolidation um, and um, I kind of wanted to get your sense about what buyers are going to emerge uh, next year, not only to, to drive consolidation, but just sort of investing in the sector. Um, you know, there's certainly been uh, rhetoric around too many developers in the space in general, and there being a need to combine. But is it the sense of, you know, investors tucking it in? Is it a sense of even a developer and a developer merging, um, you know, which we haven't necessarily seen yet? You know, just want to get your thoughts on um, how this might come, come about. Yeah, well, I, your, your last point was very interesting. Are, are we going to see more mergers of peers? Um, that, that I think makes a lot of sense. And I agree, we have not seen very much of it. Um, just given the landscape is so much broader than it's ever been, uh, I think, you know, peers or, uh, you know, 
equal size platforms that have, uh, you know, that have different uh, but synergistic strengths, maybe even DG and utility platforms coming together. Of course, you know, regional uh, community solar platforms coming together to become more national. I absolutely think uh, that, that we'll see that uh, in this year. I think in terms of just your, your other question about um, which, uh, which buyers or investors do we expect to see being more active in 24 than before? Um, you know, I think I break it up into a couple of quick categories. You know, the established players with scale and access to financing, again, who already have those competitive advantages in a high interest rate environment, uh, will continue to invest and diversify. Uh, we think that, you know, a lot of the newer money coming to the space um, will come from sovereign funds from all over the world. Um, certainly capital from Europe. Um, the Middle East and Asia PAC will continue to come in. We're seeing that uh, very often here at Javelin, where we're having sophisticated investors from their home markets in uh, in Europe, Middle East, and Asia, um, really wanting to get into the U.S. And I think that will be driving uh, driving M and A activity and some very interesting deals as as these finally start to coalesce. Uh, I think that you know on the um, uh, in terms of generalist infrastructure funds that don't need to put money into renewables. Um, many of them are starting to pivot away from renewables. So I think we'll see the less from generalist infrastructure managers that uh, again, have other asset classes that they feel have uh, you know better risk adjusted returns because there is still a lot of money coming into renewables. Um, and I also think that uh, a, a demographic that's, uh, let's say two, two other demographics that, that we're gonna see more investment from is one with investors that come from more of a power marketing or power markets background. So, you know, trading shops um, and other types of investors that come from, uh, you know, power markets culture uh, will uh, will realize that they have some competitive advantages as, uh, as, as PPAs become shorter or start to have more restrictions. And then I think, you know, to, to the extent that there are distressed assets, um, then, you know, generalist capital providers that really understand restructuring will see opportunities here as well. Um, the only other thing I wanted to mention just about uh, new types of buyers uh, that I think is really important not to ignore because we've been talking about assets and platforms is there is an absolutely unprecedented amount of growth capital looking to invest in the value chain. So we're talking here now again, not about assets or about uh, development platforms, but rather you know, successful and growing companies in the value chains that really are helping accelerate the energy transition. Um, we, see, we expect to also see a lot of uh, corporate type funding into private companies that, uh, that, that will all be contributing as, uh, at, with these rising tides. Great. So Patrick, uh, let's switch gears to platforms. Um, What's your uh, expectations for valuations for platforms uh, to normalize or, or platform owner founders like to get better bang for their buck looking for preferred investment as opposed to majority sale, which seemed to be a dominant trend sort of in, in the back half of 23. Um, what, what are your thoughts there? Yeah, so it, it's, a, it's a really good question. I think the first half of it is what's your observation and expectation on asset-centric platforms whether that be solar, wind, storage, combination of all of the above, is it's the the short answer is all relative. So if you start from a couple of years ago, platform valuations were somewhere between high to astronomically high. And if you look at the reason why, it's important to look at 
why did that happen in 2021? Why did that happen in early 2022? The biggest swing factor in platform valuations is new investors, new acquirers of platforms were ascribing um, a lot of value to future growth. So if my pipeline is a big driver of growth, an economically rational thing to do is to grow that pipeline as big as possible. And so not only have folks done that, they were rewarded for that. Um, there's a couple of things that occurred kind of between mid-22 that really resonated and exacerbated in 2023. First is the elephant in the room. Rates went from basically zero to something very high, much higher than zero. Um, the other is IRA. There was a, a bit of joy and then a bit of a hangover from the IRA because it was great, but the clarity wasn't quite there. And then the other part is it became clear that development through, you know, FERC order 2023, a handful of other things, it's going to become a lot more expensive. It's going to take a lot longer and it's, it's becoming ultra competitive. And so all of a sudden, uh, you've, uh, if you're, you know, again, economic, economically rational being who created a developer and you have a 20 gigawatt pipeline, you look at that and say, um, all right, that's going to be a lot more expensive to develop. It's going to take a lot longer. It's going to require a lot more capital. Um, so that's kind of internal. You overlay market views, again, going from the good years to uh, the what 2023 looked like is they uh, an investor would now look at a platform and say, uh, we we can value your operating assets. That's very straightforward. Maybe our cost of capitals, you know, changed on the margins. We can value very near-term projects. And now they look at their future growth and they say, um, man, that's that's big. That's expensive. That's going to take a long time. They're going to burn a lot of overhead. That, that we're going to carry a lot of people to do that. And so, they uh, a lot of investors went to ascribing value up front describing very little up front and saying, we'll give you that value upon delivery of said value. And so what that did is it's, and Jason kind of hit on this a few different times, is you had sellers who had 2021 and 2022 numbers in their head. You had buyers who were looking at the current landscape and saying, we're going to pay less. And so it's created this massive spread in expectations of value versus value that was available. And when you have these massive spreads um, and, you know, if you're within 10%, you're 20%, that's negotiable. If you're 50% apart, that's usually a bridge that's not crossable without some major realization, some major event that pushes. And so that's why we saw a lot of platform transaction in 2023 get stalled was because of that reason. Is there's there an inherent inherent to private markets, inherent to imperfect information is um, bid-ask spreads are gonna take a while to uh, for information to flow through. So now we fast forward to 2024. I think there's a little closer on the bid-ask spreads. There still is that um, wide gap on valuations, especially if you're the lion's share of your values in, in future growth. So the way to solve that is structuring. So if I'm a developer and I'm bringing in an investor, I'm not asking you to pay for my future projects today. I'm asking for the bridge 
to realize that value. And then once that value is created, we can split it in a way that's equitable. And to me, that's a trend I think we'll continue to see this year. And Jason had another point of that ecosystem around small, small investors, medium-sized investors, massive investors that will do um, credit or structured equity is you know, night and day to where it was five years ago. And it's even much improved to where it was three years ago. So I think that if we had the, the transaction type to watch this year, it's going to continue to be structured equity or credit at the developer level. Um, so let's go back to for quarter 2023. Um, you know, I th I'd say all the major ISOs at this point have their reforms in various different phases right now. Um, and, uh, you know, some are, some mirror each other, some are differ from each other, but I'm trying to get to the question of what's proving to be conducive to project level asset sales today, uh, as opposed to others and why. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's a, it is it is the key question to ask, and I think the the point there is what is what is conducive to an asset sale is actually scarcity. So what FERC order 2023 has done in most markets has created scarcity. So if I have a good project that somehow did get caught up in the reforms and is near term, that's an inherently valuable project. If I have a project that got caught up in a queue reform that's now looking at this will be operational in 2029. Uh, it goes back to the comment earlier, it's expensive and longer to develop. And so, yes, you could sell that, but most of your value is going to be accrued in 2027, 2028, 2029. So the markets, it's a, an odd um, output or uh, odd effect that the um, that for quarter 2023 had on the market is that it's created scarcity value, whereas a year or two ago, there was so much in the queues and all the queues that there was no scarcity value. Differentiation was there. It just wasn't apparent. And so I think it's, uh, you know, it's a reality of the situation. There's a couple of markets where there is no scarcity value and development assets there, unless they have really dynamite locational value, um, don't, you can't really realize that as a developer. Great. So let's talk about storage. Um, you know, like to get a sense from you about what you think the drivers are for storage uh, deal flow um, and what what's the path you think towards uh, in achieving a level of institutional level ownership on par with wind and solar. And before I get into it, I guess I want to contextualize a little bit. There have been plenty of deals in storage today. Like what I'm asking isn't necessarily like a new question. It's more like, well, what have we seen happen so far and how do you think it's going to like mirror uh, in terms of what's to come as storage demand continues, you know, precipitously higher. Totally. Yeah, I think on the first part of the question, what is going to drive storage M&A in 2024? So on the project side, where the vast, vast majority of these transactions are going to um, take place, is project M&A is going to continue to be driven by much like the theme I just mentioned, by scarcity. So if you have a project in California that's before Q cluster 14, um, that's very valuable because right. Q cluster 14 created that scarcity value. Um, I think the other point, biggest driver is who's buying these projects. And this is actually true for solar and for wind is 
the asset buyer universe has almost done a 180 um, to where it was two or three years ago. Whereas two or three years ago, it was a lot of infrastructure funds and it was a lot of large independent power producers, uh, a lot of which were European-based with big US operations. Now that we're coming on the back end of consolidation, a lot of what used to be kind of small scrappy developers now have massive balance sheets. And so they've now become um, big buyers because they have the balance sheet behind them. They've have the equity commitments. Um, so the buyer universe has changed. And then uh, as much as we like to think in these private markets, long-term perspective is that there is always gonna be the element of um, event-driven. So uh, events that cause, you know, price spikes in Texas or in California or outages in PJM, it's going to move these move these up atop risk committees, investment committees, um, and that's something that we we can't short sell. So I think that's what we see as the biggest drivers in project level M and A in storage in 2024. Um, and then, um, the, yeah, go ahead. I was going to say hit on the the second question you had, which is like. All right, where it's the holy grail. How do we how does the energy storage industry kind of climb the ladder to where wind and solar is? And so um, some of the answers I'll give aren't aren't terribly novel. Um, but before I do that, I'll give context of if I was a buyer of an energy storage platform, the implicit bet I would be making is on power long-term power price volatility in the US, which I think most of us can say, yes, that's a good bet to be made. Um, what I'd be very weary of is power price volatility in a single market or a single ancillary market, which is even thinner, or a single capacity market, which is even thinner yet. And so I think the first part is time. And what time does is a few things. Is One, it allows these... Uh, storage platforms, these storage portfolios, pie chart to stop, not look 50% Texas, 50% California, right. but it's a much broader mix. Yeah. So I think that's going to be a big driver. Um, the second is, again, this is the element of time to scale, is how do you get um, sovereign wealth funds interested? Well, you got to crack kind of the 250 or 500 million mark um, in order to get their attention. The next is end value from an operating standpoint. So it's just like, do we have the data? Do um, do we see, do we see the locational value? Do we see the consistent spread of a specific system above the system lambda? Um, and I think that's going to be key, as well as the efficacy uh, where needed of a trading strategy. It's like, can you show us that not just backcasting theoretically, but can you show us that you're able to achieve kind of consistent differentiated returns on these batteries. Um, and then you'll notice the one part that I don't have that I'm maybe one, a contrarian or a bearer on is actually don't think the need for structuring for hedges is a big driver because again, it goes back to the point earlier is you're inherently buying long-term power price volatility in the US. And I think if that's the inherent bet you're making, Hedges, um, kind of non-market driven contracts certainly can help. It can make some projects, some investors help, but I think broadly it's better just to take that exposure 
um, as, a, as equity risk as opposed to saying that that's the key to unlock it. I actually think it's the opposite. Okay. And just lastly, kind of a fundamental question about the storage industry in general. Um, you know, ERCOT obviously has been merchant, you know, for quite some time, but there's been some parties like Hatch out there that are looking to offer something contracted. And then of course the tolling agreements out in California. Um, and, you know, when you talk to people about storage in Texas and storage in California, it becomes night and day in some respects when you talk about M&A, to be honest. But I'm just curious if you've seen any promising developments in some of these newer contracts that are being structured, um, again, from the likes of Hatch and other like um, commodities groups, like if it's yeah. gotten a, a greater degree of comfort with, with new investors even, or it, it, even if it's not a factor at all, like I'm just, just curious what, what yeah. you've done. Yeah, and I, I I do think that it's a it's an area right for, for innovation where um but the the way we look at it is what are the contract structures that we see that we really like that we think are value add. So almost all of those, not all of them, but almost all of them are market driven. When I say market driven, it's in California, the utilities are required to uh, participate in the capacity market through re resource adequacy contracts. Mm -hmm. So those have a market-based need. In um, Massachusetts, there's the Clean Peak program that is, it's very innovative in a way to signal um, or capture the value, allow a, a developer to capture the value um, through credits. And again, that's it's more re it's regulatory driven, um, but it's there's a fundamental need there when you start to go more into hedges, insurance products, swaps is they definitely have their place. It's a very helpful bridge to make a what could not be an necessarily be a, a true to form infrastructure asset look and feel like an infrastructure asset. So it could be a bridge to bring capital in is ultimately if you're buying these, um, if you're buying a project, if you're going to invest in a project if you're going to build and own a project is the fundamental uh, you know, revenue stream, you're going to have a market thesis. And then ideally it's better to have equity that understands and agrees with that market thesis, as opposed to have equity and then outsource all of the, uh, all of the risk. We've just seen that fixed for floating discount be um, quite high. Okay, great. Well, that's about all the time we've had, although I think we could be talking to these gentlemen for another few hours if we wanted to. But uh, thank you so much for your time today, guys. And uh, please tune in next time. Uh, Burke out. Thank you.